0: Hello podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in today to the InScape Quest podcast show. I am your host, Trudy Howley. Here I am talking with people about how they engage with their relationships, work and passions. Please subscribe and share this show with a friend and thanks to you we can grow meaningful conversations together one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm having a conversation with Diane Sorvet, Director of Animal Care and Control in Palm Beach County, Florida. She's been in this role for 20 years. Our conversation includes how we can really support protecting animals from suffering by supporting those whose job it is to interface between the law, the public, and the animals. Understanding the challenges and importance of animal welfare work. Hello, Diane. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you today. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to join me.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me for this conversation.
0: So I know we have a lot of different subjects we can cover here. I'm going to start out really, maybe let's get clear with some language. I know different people are calling the roles in your profession different names right now. So what's going on for you and uh, where you are in Florida?
1: Historically, our agency was called Animal Regulation. I believe it was in the eighties that the name changed to Animal Care and Control, Palm Beach County Animal Care and Control. And that was added because at that time there was vision and recognition that there was more than just controlling animals. It was more about caring for animals in the field. And now, as we're looking at decades later, we have actually discussed changing our name once again, even though we're a governmental agency, from animal care and control to animal care and protection. So we've looked at that. We haven't made that switch yet. There are agencies that are, that are attempting to, to get their name away from anything that sounds regulatory, controlling, my personal philosophy is that there is always going to be a role for regulation and control of animals while simultaneously protecting them. So I think we have to strike that balance as we're looking at changing the way we talk about what we do in our profession.
0: Thank you for explaining that. And so is it okay if we use the term animal control officers and animal co- protection officers in this Absolutely. conversation? I'm most curious right now, as we start to move into a phase of post-pandemic, what might you anticipate some of the issues are going to be around people having so many pets during the time of COVID? I know a lot of people have adopted and rescued animals whilst they've been in lockdown.
1: It is a concern and it's, it's especially concerning to us once the government releases or lifts the protection um, on people who are renting, uh, the majority or a great number have been protected from being evicted during the pandemic. At some point, those protections are going to go away altogether, and we're seeing it happen in smaller numbers right now through some legal technicalities that are going on. But we definitely worry that once the protections are completely lifted, that there may be a greater influx of animals into the shelter. So what we're doing and and most of my peers are doing uh in Florida especially in larger shelters that have resources is we're we're preparing safety nets to try to keep pets and people together whether that be helping them right now with pet food banks which we have several uh in the county through private organizations um whether it's trying to help them find places that they can rent that are pet friendly. Uh, We're working along these lines, again, to just try to look at what safety nets can be offered um, not only through a governmental agency, but with partnering with nonprofits throughout uh, the area.
0: That sounds like a very worthwhile and, and big project as well. From my perspective of working in the field of mental health as animals suffer from anxiety as much as people do and as people start to transition back into sort of office environments, what's it gonna be like for anxious
1: animals to now be left alone? That is going to be problematic for some because we all know that animals can suffer from um, separation anxiety, it's a very real phenomena. It's not just that your pet is more needy than, than some others, but animals are creatures of habit and they get very used to getting up at a certain time, eating at a certain time. And with people that have worked remotely, they have now become accustomed to their person being home. Um, consistently, and they've become very attached to that. So I think the owners of pets have to be aware of this and they have to start working out a plan if they haven't done it already on how to transition, not just themselves back into the work environment, but their pets um, in being alone. Now, from my perspective, I would love to see more companies that are pet friendly Mm-hmm. because I do firmly believe that uh, allowing a person to to bring a dog to work uh, can be very comforting and it can increase productivity
0: yes and I know um, there's been considerable success with using therapy dogs at airports and in hospitals in public places alleviate stress right. so.
1: hopefully as we evolve from this pandemic, that we will open our eyes and look at things a little more clearly, and maybe with better focus when it comes to how important animals are to mental health.
0: Absolutely. I'm curious, because this is a pre-existing issue, and I'm wondering if it might escalate going forward now that people that work for you are going to be under more pressure, how do you see compassion fatigue and burnout showing up?
1: I've been seeing this since really I started here. The burnout is nothing new. I do know that that when I started 20 years ago as director of this organization, our turnover rate was nearly 50%. I thought maybe it was just us when I started really looking and and digging and drilling down into it, that seemed to be sort of a national average in animal welfare workers. Now we have worked hard through the years um, in, in our agency to recognize signs of compassion fatigue. Our um, county has resources uh, through our Employee Assistance Program. So when a manager recognizes the signs, of someone being overly emotional on the job, crying, uh, irritability, missing work, we refer those employees to the Employee Assistance Program. It's a free service and it, it, there are uh, psychologists on staff and our employees can take advantage of that and go and and have free access to mental health. health. Uh, So I think that that's been very important. Our organization has evolved through the years. I believe that that we've seen more compassion fatigue um, simply because we have strengthened our animal cruelty laws, the neglect, and we have... We have really focused on trying to stop this in our community. So as a result of that, our animal control officers are often the first responders to any complaint on animal neglect or or cruelty. So they are exposed to this on a daily basis, and that stays with you. So it's even more important that those resources be in place for the employees. And what we're now discovering is that it really needs to be part of curriculum that's taught from the very beginning. Instead of simply putting them on the job, letting them see what they're going to see and then trying to deal with it uh, through mental counseling, mental health counseling, if we can prepare employees for what they're going to be seeing and, and give them some tools to help deal with that on the job, they may be able to come through this um, without such anguish and such stress that they live with daily and take home at night.
0: Well, thank you for explaining that so clearly. And I'm in agreement with you that I think having this information upfront is super important for any kind of first responder. You know, I'm working on building a course with Code 3 to address this very issue of how to deal with trauma exposure and also how to expand coping with stress tolerance. And I think having the psychoeducational piece up front and the coping tools is going to be invaluable in not only supporting people to have long, productive careers, but also to take the stigma away from correct. utilizing mental health services when they're needed. Because I know with a lot of first responders, there are resources available, but there's still stigma about utilizing
1: them. That is correct. And, and that's a conversation that I've had with many of our employees, where they resist um, seeking help, the other side of that coin, though, is that there's a perception that people who work in animal welfare become hardened. Much like in law enforcement, there's that perception mm-hmm. that, that you simply become immune to seeing those the, the horrible things that you see. What I f- have found in animal welfare is that that someone may appear to be hardened or non-caring, but inside they're really falling apart. When we see someone who, in our opinion, doesn't have compassion, those people are, are removed from the job. We want our employees to be compassionate, but we want them to be mentally healthy. And to be able to cope with, with what they're seeing in the field.
0: You know, any kind of job as a first responder, and especially in a field where you're dealing with vulnerable animals in the same way that you might be dealing with vulnerable children, so important that we understand that compartmentalizing is, is useful Like you actually do need to compartmentalize, but at some point you also need to unpack
1: that and process it. So it doesn't build up over time. Right. I know with some of our cases and we do work closely with law enforcement, but in the majority of cases, our animal control officers are often the first person on the scene. Mm -hmm. And one case has stuck with me for such a long time where one of our animal control officers arrived to a complaint of manner of keeping, meaning animals are not being kept in um, healthy, clean conditions and and not being fed properly. And when this officer arrived, the the scene that she saw were chained dogs um, that were emaciated But there was a cage over to the side, a metal wire crate, and inside of it was a small pit bull type dog that was simply skeletal that she thought was dead. It was on its side and it was just skeletal. And the the cage floor was so covered in urine and feces that the dog's skin had become adhered or stuck to it. And she walked over and the dog was able to open one eye. At that point, you have an officer or a human, any human whose first instinct is, oh my gosh, I need to help this creature. And your instinct is to open that cage and try to loosen it from the debris that it's stuck to, to try to save its life. And instead she, she knew she had to go to the co- to her vehicle and get the cameras and photograph everything around her. And it, it deeply affected her and other officers. The dog did live, there was a happy ending to this story, but the photographs will, will haunt a person forever to mm-hmm. look at them. That is a good example of someone that compartmentalized but inside it was absolutely tearing this person apart. Our officers deal with that regularly. We have had cases where officers react immediately as opposed to gathering that evidence. And in those situations, you, you will lose your court case and you're, you'll lose that opportunity to send that person to jail or to prison as well as to prevent them legally from owning animals indefinitely. Being prepared ahead of time, knowing you have to compartmentalize, and knowing that you, you, you need everything ready to take that, those photographical evidence so that a judge can see exactly what was happening.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that story and example. There's so many layers to that situation as a educational experience, also supporting the people that are going into those situations, and knowing that they have tools to deal with that. And also going through the policies and procedures that I know that you have a lot of insight and experience around and developing as well, I also think when you talk about photographs and images, it's like I would imagine some of that material also gets used for educational purposes for other officers. And I think even from a trauma exposure point of view, just simply looking at photos of abuse and neglect and cruelty can
1: be traumatizing. When I first started this job, I had not worked in an animal shelter before. I had been on the advisory board for this organization for nine years, but there's a very big difference between working you know, as a governmental advisor on a committee as opposed to being in this desk and seeing what goes on. I remember my first week, one of our officers brought me his scrapbook and showed me the photographs of cases that he had worked on. Those photographs haunt me to this day. Mm-hmm. They absolutely do. We, we don't ever wanna become to the point that that doesn't bother us. If we ever reach that point, I don't know how we can continue to do the job we do to help animals because you have to have that, that compassion just like you have to have it for children or working with elderly people. You know, you've got to have it. But those photographs and and the things that you see on search warrants, they never leave you. So
0: as we think about the shock and the horror of being a first responder and oftentimes when there's animal cruelty going on, there's often domestic violence and child abuse or drug misuse, all those things that you're exposed to. Do you think the public has a real understanding of the kind of job you do and your employees do?
1: I think that governmental animal shelters still have this, this stigma and this reputation that you're either dog catchers or that you simply kill animals, whatever comes into your shelter. There's still that that stigma that's attached that's very far from the truth. We have to still work even in spite of, of our rate for animals and the laws that we've instituted and the education that we do to the public, we still have to fight that stigma. I could be at a cocktail party and someone will introduce me and I'll see this flicker across someone's face and they'll say, oh, you kill animals at your shelter. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something that uh, is a burden that we all carry because people often look at us like that. We work very hard to change the lives of of animals for the better. And, but we have, we look at this big picture and the big picture is it revolves around laws and legislation and educating people on caring for their animals. And I know we have to put aside what people think about us uh, because on any given day, they may love what you do, but the next day they may not like what you do.
0: It's trying to find a a balance in terms of educating the public about what you actually do and what needs to be done and how they can support you going forward. And it sounds like you've achieved a lot in your 20 years in your role, and I'm sure you have a lot to give to other agencies as well you've touched on a couple of instances of being exposed to trauma and traumatic images. And I'm sure there's many, many more, but what has kept you going all this time?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I've developed a really good team here. Uh, we have um, uh, our managers are like-minded. There was a lot of resistance to change when I first started and but through the years uh, we have developed a very cohesive team. Uh, we may not always agree, but we can we can talk things out and we can be honest with each other and we can be vulnerable to each other. And that vulnerability plays a very important role in talking about your fears, uh, your feelings. Um, a, a, an example of, of the fear is again, when I I first started here and so many animals were coming in, the the save rate was, you know, very low. It was only about 40 to 45% of dogs left here alive and 18% of cats, you know, 75 to 100 animals were arriving every day at the shelter. It was very hard to just even focus because you had so many animals incoming and officers that were bringing animals in had a great feeling of guilt because they knew that the chances of this animal getting out alive were slim. So there there was this added layer of stress of I'm removing an animal from a situation that's not good, but am I putting it In a situation where it's not going to to make it, where it's where it may be euthanized. So you know that's and that still exists throughout the country today, because there are still so many shelters, um, especially governmental shelters, where we are the people that each county has appointed to be you know to, to have oversight on animal uh, control, I'm gonna use that word. Many of these these facilities are so underfunded that still exist that fear of um, if I bring it in it may not make it out alive. Those of us who are in shelters that are larger and have more resources have a responsibility to help these smaller shelters and to help find ways For them to save more animals, even if it is going into their counties and helping by relieving them of the burden of some of their animals. Um, For shelters like ours, where we've reduced our numbers dramatically, perhaps that's us reaching out to some rural shelters and saying, how can we help you? Some people are resistant to change, but in general, nobody wants to be known as a high kill shelter which you know are three words that i really really detest in the world of animal welfare
0: So as you expand your area of expertise, as you move into the next stage of your career or retirement, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you can really support in many different ways, consulting, educating within and without in terms of public outreach, as well as in the
1: actual shelters themselves.
0: That's the goal.
1: goal. My goal is I will be retiring in the fall. After 20 years here, it is time for me to take a new path. But I know that my path will always involve animal welfare. And so I am looking towards um, some rest. (laughs) But I'm... But for a little while, but I also want to look at consulting, especially in that area of policies and procedures, which are extremely critical to facilities to set the right uh, procedures and protocol in place so that officers or kennel workers or clinic workers, they don't have to play it by ear. Everything is in place for them to learn from the ground up that you win your cases because there is absolutely nothing worse than knowing that that this person does not need to own animals anymore and to lose a case because you've forgotten to take your photographs um, or your paperwork was not processed Um, appropriately in the process of becoming a compassion fatigue educator. So that I'm looking forward to because I've certainly suffered from compassion fatigue. I understand it. Um, I see it in the eyes of the people I work with. It is something that needs to be expanded in our field. Absolutely.
0: That's a lot of important work to be done there. And I'm curious also from a legal point of view at state and federal levels, do you believe that there's a lot of work to do for legal advocacy?
1: There still is a lot of work to do um, nationwide. And we've got great national organizations working on legislation like the Humane Society of the United States, the ASPCA, Um, these are organizations that are doing good work on behalf of animals. And on a local level, it's very important for animal care and control directors to become involved in strengthening the laws that exist in the counties that they have authority over. This is an area that is hard. For, for some directors, especially smaller shelters, but it, it takes a conversation with the leaders in your community, with your county commissioners, with your mayors about what laws are on the books currently and what can be done in that community to improve upon it. I often hear people say, well, there's no point in doing that because we don't have the resources to enforce it. But if it's never put on the books for people to, for the public, the animal owning public to know that this is wrong, that this is inherently wrong and illegal, um, you'll never be able to enforce it. You'll never try to enforce it. My mantra has always been not to wait until the resources are there because get those laws on the books, and then you will, you will absolutely start working to make the change in your community
0: very hopeful and i i love it that's a great mantra to have yeah make the chain on a note of coming full circle about lockdown i do want to touch base about the stories of joe exotic and large animals (laughs) how
1: did joe exotic come into this my grandson will be thrilled (laughs)
0: <laughs> because I know, um, you know you don't just deal with small animals, dogs and cats and horses, especially in Florida. What your experiences of dealing with exotic animals? are you an advocate for changes around uh,
1: i you know, I have been an advocate for changes in wild animals way before my career here, um prior to coming here. I started Palm Beach County's first wildlife hospital. It was needed, uh, there was not one and I raised the money to have that opened. Our goal was only to to work with native Florida wildlife, but inevitably you you get everything in the universe that, that pops up on your doorstep. Back in the late 70s, we were begging the authorities to stop the import of the big snakes, and the imports of iguanas, which now, you know, here we are in 2021. And South Florida is overran with iguanas and boas and pythons, um, you name it, Uh, it's here. And had those people listened to the advocates back in in the 70s, um, I don't think we would be dealing with what we are dealing with now. Because you literally, our officers have even responded to um, a huge python, um, several python calls. One was, uh, I think, 16 or 18 feet long. And our poor animal control officer arrived to this townhouse and went in a courtyard and knocked on the door. And he heard a hiss. And when he lurked over to the side, there was a 16 or 18 foot, I can't remember, uh, python coiled up, not something the average animal control officer comes across. The hoarding cases, you never know what you're going to find in a hoarding house. And we have um, developed partnerships and relationships with wildlife organizations that when we do get these exotic animals in or we're called to a call that has something like that, we're able to network with them. If we're going for custody, maybe we can leave those animals with the people who are better prepared to care for it than my poor kennel staff who is used to dogs and cats and horses and goats and sheep and all of that because we deal with a lot of livestock also. Dealing with kinkajous or Nile monitors or pythons is is not something that's within the comfort zone that we have here. And nor is it really when you get down to it within our purview. It's it's within that scope and that purview of fish and wildlife, the, the feds, uh, the people that should have stopped the import of these animals way back when. You're welcome to cut that out if you think it's politically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you
0: for being so open and honest about that, too. Sounds like the the makings of another Carl Heisen novel, as well. Yeah, though so <laughs> I just bought well, his latest. <laughs> right. Thank you, Diane. Thank you so Certainly. much for sharing all your experiences and hopes for the future as well. And um, one thing I
1: would like to add, Trudy, is because we have been for the last, well, more than a year. Uh, in pandemic lockdown, it's important to remember that our animal control officers throughout the United States, as well as shelter workers, still continued working through this. And our officers, again, not just in Palm Beach County, but I'm certain throughout the United States have had to go into COVID positive houses where people are being taken to hospitals, um, placed on, on ventilators, and we've had to go in and remove all of their pets. And, you know, that's, that's an extra layer of stress on people uh, because, again, there has been this conflicting information uh, from the CDC or, or from other authorities on how to properly handle pets from COVID positive environments. So, you know, it's not just the horrors of animal neglect, but you have this added mental stress um, of, are we handling these animals properly? Are we taking the proper safety precautions? There's just so many layers to the stress that's involved in animal welfare that needs to be recognized um, by people who who serve over organizations such as ours, you know, your, your mayors, your county commissioners, which we have fabulous ones here and recognize the work that we do. But that's not the case in many other places. And it's something that needs to be continually evolving.
0: Well, thank you so much for bringing that into our awareness. And a special thanks to all the officers out there that have worked throughout COVID and lockdown and put themselves at risk to continue doing their jobs. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this InScape Quest podcast with me, Trudy Howley. If you like this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podbean and leave a comment. You can also find me on Instagram at InScapeQuest. Thank you for listening and for your shares. Cheerio for now.